Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This episode is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My conversation with John Kay, author of American Philosophy, A Love Story, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and a professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He won the 2018 John Dewey Prize from the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Peg offers a rich history, philosophical inquiry, and a memoir of an existential crisis that takes us to the heart of American philosophy. He embarks on an unexpected journey of discovery in the abandoned library at the West Wind estate of the early 20th century philosopher William Ernest Hawkin, an intellectual descendant of William James. At West Wind, Kay finds an invaluable repository of Hawkins' thinking, evidence of many significant friendships, and the remains of fundamental questions of American philosophy. Like his philosophical forebearers, he ponders essential questions. Is life worth living? What is the meaning of life? How are we to be both free and obligated to others? Seeking answers, Keg engages with the thinkers such as Ralph Waldo Emerson, Charles Sanders Peirce, and Josiah Royce, who drew on a wealth of classical and continental philosophy to create an American philosophical tradition. This is a personal intellectual creative work, sure to inspire all who ask the same questions. Here is my conversation with John Kay. Now let me introduce you to the author, John Kay. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lily. Your book is an amazing read. It's extremely enjoyable, uh, which was a little surprising, I think, because when we think of philosophy, we think of it as something being very, really heavy. But I think the fact that you put in the title of the book, American, you know, philo- uh, what was it, the title of the book, American Philosophy, A Love Story? I go, oh, a love story. What did you do with this? So it's beautifully written. It's very moving, and which is, it's a very unusual piece of work. So tell me about yourself first, your background, how you came to write this book, and why this book. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I I grew up in central Pennsylvania and not a whole lot of philosophers come out of central Pennsylvania. It's not one of the chosen occupations for middle of Pennsylvania. But And my mom, who's super practical, said to me, if you're going to do philosophy, you have to write for me. In other words, you have to write for like an average person. And so I think when you say it's not a really scary book or it's not a really intense in terms of the um, theoretical lifting you have to do, it probably comes out of my background as uh, somebody who uh, came into philosophy through American pragmatism and also through uh, some very practical folk who I grew up with uh, in Reading. So now when you wrote this book, uh, you start really off with an existential personal situation. Uh, what were you feeling that, that led you to do this, this work? You were feeling something per- personally. Yes, the book is um, half half memoir, half American intellectual history, and um, 
I have always been attracted to thinkers who write personally. So William James, Frederick Nietzsche, um, and then the ancients who really intended philosophy to be read and to be lived, uh, uh, read slash lived um, personally. And so um, what I was thinking is um, I had an experience, uh, a sort of unique experience that intersected with uh, my interest in William James. I found a, a mansion in um, the, the hills of um, New Hampshire in the White Mountains. And in this mansion, there was a library. And this library was owned by one of Will- William James's last students, William Ernest Hawking. Um, and at the same time that I found the library, I was going through a number of different personal crises. So uh, my father, um, who I was estranged from, had just died and I had watched him die. Um, and then uh, the marriage I was going through sort of fell apart, not sort of fall apart, totally fell apart. And I used the library um, in two ways as a sort of refuge. So first, I spent a lot of time in that library up in the hills of New Hampshire um, as a sort of escape from my life in Boston. But I also came to see American philosophy as sort of this um, way of thinking through the the sort of difficult business of living. Um, and it turns out that William James has some things to say about the meaning of life and love and freedom and communion uh, and ultimately God. Um, and so the book is about the way that American philosophers from Emerson to James to Hawking can sort of help you through your life. Now, one thing that was just so shocking to me was uh, West Wind was the estate of Hawking's estate. And there you found this library that had been neglected and shockingly neglected. And I was like, how does this happen? How does, I mean, when did Hawking die? And how, why was this library neglected by scholars? Sure. So Hawking took over the chair that Josiah Royce had at Harvard, um, which is argu- was arguably uh, the most important chair at the turn of the century um, in 1900. And he, uh, he was basically the last idealist at Harvard. Um, and he died in 1960. He uh, put this mansion and the library together. He built it. He both um, designed it, but also built the library um, himself in 1930 and um, spent uh the last 30 years of his life, primarily uh, in Madison, New Hampshire. When he died in the 1960s, however, his um, his son, Richard Hawking, who was also a philosopher um, who eventually worked at Emory, um, took over the library and uh, tried to keep it up. Um, it, when when Richard died in 2001, however, the, the library fell into disrepair and was basically abandoned when I came across it. Um, in 2009. Now, why, uh, how did you find it? I mean, were you just like, how did you find it? Did somebody tell you it was there? Did you, had you, did you have information ahead of time? It was, I thought the whole adventure of finding that library is like a dream of mine. You know, I would love to stumble onto a library that nobody had actually looked into. I think that that's just so romantic. <laughs> It, it was so romantic on many different levels. And so um, what happened was I was in Shakorowa, New Hampshire um, in 2009 because I was on the planning committee of a conference in honor of William James's uh, 100th year, 100 year after his death conference or celebration. 
Um, and James had a summer home in Shikoro in New Hampshire, which is six miles from Madison, which is where West Wind is. And I walked into a coffee shop and I bumped into this 91-year-old guy by the name of Bun Nickerson. You can't, <laughs> I, say, I say to my students, you can't make names like that up. And uh, he, Bun, said to me, oh, I used to know a philosopher. And I thought, you cannot be talking about William James. You're not that old. But he was talking about uh, William Ernest Hawking. He was a close family friend of William Ernest Hawking. And Bun said, you really have to go up to this estate there's a library on that estate that I think you might be interested in. And so on that fall afternoon, he piled me into his blue Dodge pickup truck and we went up to the estate, which is uh, really sort of in the hinterlands of um, uh, above Madison. And uh, from that point, uh, when, when we got there, the, the, the estate was empty. The family only stayed there during um, the summer. But the, the library, which is a freestanding library of approximately eight to 10,000 books, um, was left open. Man, um, that would door. just be so exciting. <laughs> I know. It was. And the door was unlocked. And, and for better or for worse, I let myself in that first day. And what I found inside was truly shocking. And um, this, over the next, that for uh, us. I think that that was just one of the best parts of the book. It's just like an adventure. I thought this is like a movie. I know it was just, it was completely surreal in a certain way. So, um, the, so the library is this freestanding stone structure. It has three massive French windows on the front of it. Um, and you could look inside through these windows and it just looked like Faust's library. Basically it was unbelievable. And so, um, I saw this one book that really caught my attention. It was the Century Dictionary. If you know about the Century Dictionary, it was this sort of um, lexicographical, uh, you know, it, it was a masterpiece. Uh, and the, the American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce spent no small amount of time in his life forming entries for this thing. So it was an original copy of the Century Dictionary, and I just had to see it. And so I went in. And what I found was three things. Um, one was that William Ernest Hawking um, had inherited the books, uh, a large portion of the books from William James, his teacher, and Josiah Royce. So, for example, um, the, book, uh, the books that William James used in the preparation of the varieties of religious experience. Um, the books that uh, Hawking, or rather that Royce used um, in the preparation to the world and the individual with, Oh my gosh. (laughs) So exciting. What I, what I, what I, what I found also is that William Ernest Hawking was a collector of, um, rare books, primarily first editions from the uh, 17th and 18th century. So all of first edition Kant, all of first edition Hegel, was just sitting in a, in a basically abandoned freestanding library at that point. Um, and at that point I just, I said to myself that I had to come back and, um, it was coming back was really an amazing, amazing thing. And that's where the book came from. Now you ended up befriending the family in some way. So that of course that you could get access on a regular basis. Can you talk about that relationship and who they are? Yeah. So, I mean, um, William Ernest Hawking's granddaughters, um, Penny, Jill and Jennifer, were the three women who were the primary um, uh, 
were primarily in charge of the estate or to the extent that I understood the estate. They certainly were uh, primarily in charge of the outcome of the library. Um, and I introduced myself to them via um, mail. I wrote them a letter, explained that I had come uh, and seen West Wind, and then asked very kindly, very as nicely as I could, for them to forgive my trespasses and to let me come back. And they were kind enough, and they were kind enough to let me come back. And um, and what you have to understand is that this estate—it's not a small thing. It's four hundred acres, um, and it has six buildings. Um, and it's one family and a very complex, large family. And so the question, how did these books uh, fall into disrepair or fall into neglect? It's really an issue of, I mean, they ha- the family had life to worry about, their lives, the life of the, the estate. And the books took a sort of backseat, at least um, for a while. Well, you would think that uh, Hawking's students when he died, someone would have begun asking questions about his library. I mean, or wonder about it. I, it. Some other people had been in that library f- besides the family, I'm sure. It's true. So uh, several of my teachers had either heard about the library or actually visited Hawking when he was still alive. So Doug Anderson, John McDermott, um, a gentleman by the name of uh, a professor by the name of Runer, um, they all uh, spent time up at the, the, uh, the library and actually did research up there. Um, the library was actually fairly well known. So, uh, Pearl S. Buck, who was a family friend, would spend time at the library. Um, Gabrielle Marcel, who was a friend of Hawking's, would come and visit the library. The, the library really surprisingly um, became neglected only in the last 20 years. So, I, I don't know, it just seems like such a failure of so many people, including, you know, scholars and just the public and anybody who cares about American thought. So let's talk about the book itself. You uh, frame this book, uh, your story of finding this library and what you found there and unpacking American philosophy uh, under uh, around the story of Dante's Inferno. Why did you pick that motif? Well, a couple different reasons. One is, is that um, we forget that American philosophy and pragmatism was actually born out of a deep idealism. And so if you think about Royce and James and Peirce and Hawking, they're actually reading classical texts and also um, sort of the texts that ground Western idealism, and Dante was one of them. Um, I also picked it for a very personal reason, because the book is sort of structured um, as Dante structured the Divine Comedy um, in three parts, hell, purgatory, and redemption. Or Some people like to say salvation, but I, I never got there, but you know, re- is some sort of redemption. And I think that actually William James and Josiah Royce, they argued a lot when they were neighbors on Irving street and um, in Cambridge. But what they agreed on is that human beings um, are lost many times and need to be found. And I think that that's what Dante is tapping into in a very basic way. Um, And uh, I think that James and uh, Royce agree with Dante is that what we often seek in life is not eventually what we find or what we need. Um, It's it's in the surprises of life. James, you know, um, experience happens as a series of surprises, as Emerson says, as Peirce, you know, quips on him. Um, And I think that that's something that uh, Royce and James would agree on. 
uh, James especially uh, felt strongly. And I think that that's what Dante's, uh, the mystery of paradise is like uh, for Dante in the end. Now, you, um, you cover a period of time when American philosophy, with all these, you know, people we're very familiar with, were really at their height. American philosophy, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. Can you talk a little bit about the context and where American philosophy emerged at, at its best? At its best. Um, so I, I think that um, American philosophy in, emerges um, at least in part out of the dilemma of determinism um, that comes sort of um, resurges during the 19th century. Um, first, uh, basically with the, with the advent of uh, modern science and then especially in 1858 uh, with the publication of the origin of um, the origin of Darwin's, the origin of species. Um, and I think that uh, American philosophers are extremely interested in the possibility of freedom and the meaning of freedom, given uh, the various forces that modernity, um, you know, the various faith, the forces of modernity that, that might lead us to believe that we are not free. So, for example, uh, the forces of modern capitalism, the forces of consumerist culture, the forces of um, modern science that says that we are no more than organisms that operate by way of natural law. All of these, um, and American philosophers from Emerson to James are really pushing against this. John, what were some of the ideas about American philosophy that are just sort of myths, you know, why people misunderstand what it is and, uh, you know, that it wasn't as good as continental philosophy, for instance? I mean, one of the misconceptions with American transcendentalism is that it was this airy, no, not uh, sort of airy, ethereal, spiritual tradition um, that it didn't have any traction in the real world. But that couldn't be further from the truth when it came to the transcendentalists. If you think about Margaret Fuller or um, Theodore Parker, um, these these figures who believed in Emerson's self-reliance or read carefully his oversoul, were translating um, the writings, which might seem poetic at first, into real real life consequences. So I think that's one of the misconceptions associated with transcendentalism. When it comes to American pragmatism, I think that the major um, misconception is that it can be reduced to a crass instrumentalism. So uh, American pragmatism is idealistic. It, it believes in the truth. It, it believes in a, a in in some notion of the truth. Um, I think that's a really interesting point right there. Okay, because I think I think you're right, and I want you to unpack, unpack that because that's a really good point. Yeah, that it does believe in the truth. Yeah. So I mean, you, you think about James, um, James's uh, uh, one of James's favorite. Uh, quotes from the history of philosophy that man is the measure of all things. And uh, usually that gets interpreted that James is a relativist or James is, um, you know, crassly instrumental that he's just, he says that truth is just the, uh, should be judged on the basis of its practical consequences. But James never just means consequences for him or for his local situation. He means consequences in the largest sense of the word, which is to say, consequences for larger communities and for the cosmos at large. And James, James was never, uh, James was at pains to guard against relativism, but he still got accused of it. You know, I'm thinking of Bertrand Russell or AJ Ayer, 
Um, so, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. Right, well, basically, the question of well, pragmatism is truth is what works, and how do you know it works? Right. That seems to, that seems to be the little shorthand version of cri- criticism, right? Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's it's works for who usually is the. I mean, it might work, but who, who does it work for? And James was very much aware of this. I mean, I I think about the his essay on a on a certain blindness in human beings. He says that the blindness that we have is typically not seeing others' lives as as vital as our own. He says that. And what he's urging us to do is to think about the way that the consequences of our actions impact others. Um, So he's not this individualistic, solipsistic Promethean, um, as he's usually, you know, or sometimes characterized as. Why did... uh what did they see as perceive as wrong or not uh, going the right way with European philosophy, even though they were very engaged with it, they stood, they stood in a separate spot. What were, what were their issues with European philosophy? That's a super question. I mean, they they see themselves as um, European philosophy typically could be categorized in one of three ways, a sort of rationalist, approach, an empiricist approach, or a Kantian critical approach. And all three of those fail in different ways. So for example, rationalism uh, fails in the fact that it's not attuned to um, the ground of experience or to, you know, empirical realities. Empiricism fails because it is in part overly skeptical. That's one aspect of pragmatist criticisms of uh, skepticism. But then additionally, um, that it's, uh, that it, undermines the continuities of life. It, it, empiricism sees experience as being a collection of data points instead of this um, stream, as James would say. And then finally, the Kantian critical project, if you're going to reduce everything to human autonomy and human rationality, uh, pragmatism says that you've missed something, that life is about feeling in large part. And that's what American philosophy of love story was in part trying to get back to. Now, what would you so you would you could summarize how could you summarize a, a, just some key contributions of American philosophy just to philosophy in general and you didn't talk about this in your book but did American philosophy get exported did it have any effect on continental philosophy I know that it had effect uh, North American philosophy had effect in Latin America okay so. Uh, do you do, have you seen it go the other way, or was was it America always derivative of, of Europe? Absolutely. So I'll hit that question first, and then we'll go back to the contributions. So I mean, if you think about Nietzsche's early um, readings, who was he reading? He was reading Emerson. Um, he says that Emerson um, is a friend of long standing because of his skepsis. Skepsis means just the uh, Emerson's um, a critical approach. To things, uh, and if you think about Emerson's Divinity School address, where where he takes down the puritanical culture of New England, um, it, this is not that different than what Nietzsche is going to do uh, forty years later. Um, and I think so. That's one aspect. Another aspect is if you go through the Hawking Library, you see this correspondence between Hawking and two major figures. One was Edmund Husserl, who he was a student of, who Hawking was a student of. Um, but, but the cross-pollination was really cross-pollination. They both influenced each other. And then if you think about Gabriel Marcel, the father of existentialism, Marcel uh, accounts for his religious existentialism as being um, 
stemming directly from Hawking. And you can trace that straight back to, um, to James and Royce. So that sort of answers or begins to answer. So it's, it's, it shouldn't just be regarded that it was derivative on continental philosophy. Um, I think your second question about it, about the unique contributions of American philosophy is a really interesting one. Um, I think that in, I think that American philosophy's interest in experience and is, is unique to it. Um, so if you think about, um, the seminal essay, uh, from Emerson's first series of essays, experience, um, Emerson is trying to decenter our obsession with rationality that has been reflected in European philosophy and recenter it on, on experience, which is not just rational, but it's also emotive, it's bodily, um, and it's communal in a very real way. So I think that would be the contribution that the American tradition has to make. And that's really interesting when we talk about experience because you know, the United States, America was a, a new country, a new nation relatively to Europe. And, and America was experiencing a lot of things. It, it was all about, you know, moving out to the West and building cities and building an industrial uh, base and, and immigrants coming and having all kinds of new experiences. So it kind of matches the reality of what it is to, to live in America where the ground is shifting quickly all the time, instead of, you know, living in a traditional, you know, European society where things change very slowly over hundreds of years. That's right. And I mean, if you think about James saying that experience grows by its edges, it doesn't grow by an obsessive, uh, by having the same experience over and over again, it, it grows at, at its frontiers or at its edges in James's way. So I think that your intuitions are exactly Okay, right. so what? why did American philosophy lose its vitality? What happened to American philosophy in the mid-20th century? Uh, where are we? Yep. Where are we so, now? I mean, <laughs> where are we? So I mean, uh, that's so. I think we're actually making progress uh, right now, um, but I think that in the 20th century, the rise of analytic philosophy, trying to make philosophy into a science or into a logic or into a mathematics, I think that these different moves, which happen from basically the um, 1920s straight through until, um, well, you could say that it. I, I, I'm tempted to say it's still happening today, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. In my more hopeful moments, I don't think it's the case. But in 1920, at least until 1980, um, philosophy really took an analytic turn, and it left experience and um, the idea that philosophy could have real-world import behind. And um, so you see the, the move toward epistemology and metaphysics, um, as being real philosophy and ethics and social and political philosophy as being sort of marginal. And you see, saw this through the 20th century. Thankfully, I think that that is changing today, but I think that uh, pragmatism got marginalized in that, in that transition. Which is interesting because it seems like in the 1960s, during the turbulent 1960s, that's uh, the counterculture and uh, many uh, left, the, the new left was, actually, in a way, demanding that ethics be, again, important. 
That's right. That's right. And I mean, what you do see is you do see, I mean, there are modern ethicists. Uh, I I mean, it's not to say that ethicists um, didn't, uh, that modern ethicists didn't arise, but in terms of the, the way that you formalized arguments and what counted as an argument uh, definitely changed during the mid, uh, mid 20th century away from um, experience toward analysis. And, you know, the, the groups like, you know, um, African-American people and women and minority groups were asserting that their experience mattered, that, you know, uh, uh, philosophy, theology, some of these formal analytical sort of uh, b- disciplines ignored the reality of what people, particularly subordinated people, were experiencing on the ground. That's right. But what's interesting is that philosophy as a discipline remained surprisingly insulated from that those forces. So if you think about the number of uh, people of color or women in philosophy um, through the middle of the 20th century, the numbers were pathetic compared to other disciplines. Um, and I think that that's a real I mean, that that's that's something to think, think about. And now I think that that is changing. And I was, and you know, you, I, from, I, from reading you, you're a moral philosopher. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, which I love. I love moral philosophy. It's one of my favorite disciplines, but I wanted to ask you uh, about the women. When you're looking at this library uh, that you went into, it's almost like in that library, you had the whole history of American philosophy from the European books that he had in his library to his correspondence with his friends, other great philosophers, their books. Um, it was this uh, amazing sort of capsule, time capsule, of what was important to uh, great American philosophers in, you know, in the early 20th century. And one of the most interesting part of it was that you found – the women in the attic. <laughs> I just thought that was such an amazing, like, I'm going to use that, okay, for something, because it's, it was amazing that it was so, like, uh, really made sense to me. Yeah, okay, they're in the attic. They're there. They're there. They're definitely there. So tell me about that. Tell me the, what, you, what made you go to the attic in the first place. Well, I'm glad that they weren't in the basement. <laughs> I mean, that would have been much worse. Uh, but I think, um, so what happened was that, uh, William Ernest Hawking kept his books on the first level, the main level of the library and his wife, um, Agnes Boyle O'Reilly, uh, kept, it kept, uh, her books on the second floor. And it turned out that she was very connected and very interested in women writers. Um, and so if, it, and most of those women writers ended up um, in the second floor. So if you think about Jane Addams, who uh, we oftentimes forget um, was one of the founders of American pragmatism, all of her books were, uh, all of Adams' books uh, were on the second floor. And in fact, um, what I found was that Jane Addams was a close relation to uh, the Hawkings um, in the sense that, or rather was, was close to the Hawkings in the sense that Hull House was owned by a Hawking relative, Hull House in, in Chicago, where Jane Addams uh, started the social sort of um, the settlement movement in the United States in Chicago. Uh, that house was donated by Charles Hull, who was a Hawking relation. 
And what you found in the attic was all of these first edition inscribed Jane Addams books to Hawking family relations. But these very rare books were tucked away in the eaves. They weren't even downstairs. So, I mean, it was sort of symptomatic of where women have been placed um, in philosophy. And yet one of the things that you talk about in your book is uh, Hawking's wife, Agnes, and how you believe she was misre- has been misrepresented because she was very active in her husband's career or promoting him. Can you talk a little bit about um, what people saw in, in her promotion of her husband and what was really happening also, you know, behind the scenes? Maybe your things are not as obvious about her. Sure, of course. So Agnes Boyle O'Reilly was John Boyle O'Reilly's um, daughter. John Boyle O'Reilly being um, the editor of The Pilot, which was the largest Irish paper at one time in the United States, but definitely in Boston during the, during the uprisings um, in the 18, late 1800s. And uh, John Boyle O'Reilly being a famous poet um, also. So Agnes Boyle O'Reilly marries uh, Richard Hawking. Um, and at the time, this is regarded as a mixed race marriage. It's a Catholic marrying a Protestant. And, um, and so she had a hard, I mean, both of them had a hard time of it at first. Um, but Agnes Boyle O'Reilly at first glance looks like this person who um, doted on her husband um, re- just supported him unconditionally. But if you look a little closer at the, both the manuscripts and the letters at Houghton, um, another, another, um, something else emerges that I tried to get at in the book. Um, namely that Agnes was a very independent person, um, had very clear, um, philosophical views and then wanted very badly to translate those philosophical views into practical realities. And that's what she does by forming what's called the Shady Hill School in Cambridge, which is still regarded as one of the premier independent schools in the United States. Um, it was an outdoor school uh, it was, or an open air school, as they call it still. Um, and students were encouraged to read the classics and then to get out in nature, which, to be honest, if you think about American philosophy, it doesn't get more transcendentalist than that. Uh, read the classics and go outside. So, um that's what and she Agnes uh, Agnes spearheaded that project. Well, let me ask you. It seems like uh, at the end of the book, and I know you didn't do this on purpose at all, but you end up to me being the hero of the book. Okay, <laughs> and that's because you sort of save this library and and find a home for it. Can you talk about what happened to that library? Because I know it's not uh, the books are not there any longer. Where are they? And uh, do you think that there's a lot of work that can be done on what you found there? Let me just dispel any myths, okay? I am not the savior. Um, and if you read Hiking with Nietzsche on Becoming Who You Are, you'll discover I am really not the savior. If there's any savior, I'd say my partner, Carol Hay. But uh, but anyway, let's get to the books. So the, the books are now, I'm actually looking at the, I'm at uh, University of Massachusetts Lowell in my office, and I'm looking at the, at the building where the books are right now. And... Um, there at the O'Leary Library on the third floor in this very, very small room, um, which they call an archive, but it's not really an archive, at least not the way scholars understand it today. Um, What's nice about that is that we have probably one of the premier collections of early modern and 
early modern first editions. Uh, so first edition Hobbes, first edition Locke, first edition Kant, first edition Hegel, all of first. And I mean, just you know, the list goes on and on. So we have a very nice small collection, which our students get to use on a fairly regular basis, which is unlike other archives. So if my, my feeling is if the books survived West Wind for so many years, they can be, they can be used by students more actively. Um, and that's my, my perspective. What about on the correspondence right now? Uh, um, yeah. So the, the marginalia, uh, the, there is a, there is an effort to digitize the marginalia from the books. And then the correspondence have been delivered to the various, ha- have been delivered to various archives. Um, so for example, Houghton or, um, the, the Dewey Center at University of Illinois or at one time at U- the University of Southern Illinois. So they've been moved. Now, I wanted to ask you, you were the one that cataloged all these letters. Is that correct? That is not correct. So all of these letters were oh. actually, many of those letters were cataloged by Houghton and by Richard Hawking. What, what was saved um, or sort of moved to UMass Lowell were the rare books. Um, and the, the family was generous enough to donate those books to UMass Lowell. Um, and so the libraries, the books used by James and the books used by Royce are there, as are the first editions from the 17th and 18th century. So after looking at all this and being in that library, you were going through a lot of personal turmoil during that time. How long was this period of time that you were in the library doing, you know, cataloging, looking at things, uh, reading? Uh, how long was a period of time? Two years? Well, it was three years. And what really it was was, I mean, this this uh, library, you, you, you find things that you don't expect uh, were there. So, for example... Carol and my, my, my colleague at the time, and now we have a six-year-old together. That's part of the book. Um, we, we were there uh, looking for things and she pulls out off this little, it just looks like a small pamphlet and the, the, the binding falls out. We pick the binding up and it says a reply to filmer. I didn't know this, but, um, locks two treatises on silver government, um, was first titled a reply to Filmer. It was the first edition, 1690, just sitting there and falling apart. And so that's what we were doing. We were just looking for little treasures, basically. And you know that everybody, I was very envious of what you found. I wish I could run into something. I was very envious and a uh, very rare opportunity to try a really fabulous book. But I have one final question because you uh, started off kind of an existential journey. And your, the whole time you were there, you were going through your own personal turmoil and personal issues and trying to figure out who you were and where you were going. So did you, what did you learn from these American philosophers? Do it, did it, the final question, based on what they concluded, is life worth living? Right. And the answer that William James gives is, um, the answer is maybe. It, dep- it depends on the liver. And I think I'll stick to that. And for the following reason, is the maybe, so the question is life worth living is usually answered in two exclusive ways, yes or no. And if you answer yes, uh, you can form a very rock-solid philosophy around that. And if you say no and say it long enough and hard enough, you will no longer be with us. I think maybe is a more honest answer. It keeps open the possibility of life's worth, but it puts the responsibility on us to find it. 
And, and I think, honestly, the issue of possibility and possibilities, that's where life's meaning is going to be found. And I think that that's what James and Emerson are after, um, that life is not supposed to be figured out. It is supposed to be experienced. And part of what you experience is what Gabrielle Marcel would call the mystery of being. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. Now, what would be the takeaway for the reader? Uh, you, what would you like the readers to to find in this? You know, first your mother, who is just probably I assume a layperson, and uh, and also from scholars and people who study American philosophy. What do you want them to take away from your book? So, I if they could take away the following, I would be I would be very very happy. So, in terms of my mother. I'd like her to understand that philosophy is not the most arcane of subjects, but often the most useful of subjects. When it comes to the question, was my life worth living? Um, That's a question that most reflective human beings are going to ask at one time or another or many times in their life. And philosophers have, have made it their business to helping people answer that question and to sort of ask it in a better way. So that's what, what, what I'd like my mother to take away. I think in terms of what I would like scholars to take away, it would be a point about method, that philosophy can be done in many different modes, and there is, that, that it does not demand analytic rigor at all points in order to be um, viable or, or respectable for that matter. Um, this is a mixture of memoir and um, intellectual history. I could imagine many other types uh, or many other modes. And I think that if one thing for younger scholars, what I would say is um, keep your voice as a writer. It's very difficult to do that in graduate school. Um, but but usually people going into graduate school are beautiful writers and graduate school beats it out of them. And I would say, just just give yourself a little bit of freedom to explore different modes of expression. Um, that's what I was. I that's what I was encouraged to do with this book and with hiking with Nietzsche. I totally agree with you on that last point because I do think that graduate school tends to beat it out of you if you were a good writer to start with, and then you be, you know start performing for a particular kind of model. And yeah, it's a it's a struggle to get it back. And I'm still struggling uh, with trying to get it back, um, so that I can. Can I ask you? I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, how do you think that we should get it back? Well, you know, you're talking about. Uh, you were talking about nature. Um, you know, about reading good books and then going out in nature, and that's something I've experienced living here in New Mexico. Um, it's beautiful here, and I think being out in nature, hiking, like you're going to go hiking with Nietzsche, <laughs> you know, it, it has helped me tremendously to get out in nature to recover my voice. I think that that's the case. And I think just getting away, just even away from your studies for a little while, go and live a bit and then come back to your studies. I think that that's really necessary. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, John, for this wonderful interview. I really loved your book. And Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.